Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen, and hosting with me today is... Lauren Evans. Excited to be here, Virginia. Thanks so much for coming, Lauren. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider leaving us a review or a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please encourage others to subscribe. It really does make such a huge difference. The Class of 2000 Could Have Been Anything is the title of a recent New York Times article written by Dan Levin that documented the devastating effects opioids had on the Minford, Ohio, high school class of 2000. During the 2000s, Minford's County led Ohio for fatal drug overdoses, drug-related incarceration, and babies born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. The painkiller oxycodone was introduced in 1996, the class of 2000's freshman year. Since their graduation, over 400,000 Americans have died from opioid overdoses, and 275 of those were from Minford High School's county. The New York Times tried reaching out to all 110 members of the class of 2000, and 49 classmates or relatives of classmates were interviewed for the story. Out of those, 15 reported a current or former opioid addiction. The online version of the story walks you through the school's yearbook, showing the lives affected, and it's really worth checking out. It's just an incredibly powerful presentation that shows just how personally drug addiction affects both families and communities. And, you know, the opioid crisis is something that clearly affects so many Americans. But Lauren, do you think that this is something that we really talk about enough in our daily lives and in society? I don't. And I think it's because it's so scary. According to the CDC data, 68 percent of more of the 70,000 drug overdoses in 2017 included an opioid. By my math, it's about 47,000 people. That is a major cause of death in the United States. It would be probably in the top 15 causes of death. And it's so easy to get addicted. Dr- these drugs are all around us and so easy to obtain. So, yeah, I don't think we talk about this enough. I'm I'm really glad one of our interns pitched the story to us. The way that the New York Times presented this, it, it looks like a yearbook page. And as you scroll down, like different photos get highlighted. And yet, Virginia said it perfectly. Everyone is involved, not just the people who took the pills, because even the kids who stayed clean through high school, they had cousins. They're raising other people's kids. It really affects this whole entire community. Yeah, no, I I was kind of shocked. I saw one of the other statistics from the CDC was that on average, 130 Americans die every day from opioid overdoses. And gosh, you just kind of think, how how is this not more a part of our conversation? And, you know, I think certain communities uh, are more aware than others. But it's it's something that not only, you know, we need to be aware of, but really talking about to young people, to people that are taking painkillers that need those painkillers, you know, for a season, but also need the community around them that when it's time to come off of those, maybe need some help in that process. And we need to recognize the fact that, you know, this is it's it's a powerful addiction and people walking that path of recovery are in such need of community around them and people walking with them and encouraging them that it's 
it's a daily battle for them that they have to fight. I always like to tell the story that I was on vacation with some friends in Virginia Beach and I was wearing my contacts in the ocean and I unfortunately got a little piece of sand under one of my contacts and I got a really painful scratch on my eye and it was Memorial Day so none of the uh, optometrists were open so I had to go to an urgent care clinic and I was in a lot of pain and I showed up and I was like, I don't know what to do. They sent me home with 24 Vicodins. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. And, you know, if I was an addict, that could ruin my life. Luckily, you know, I ended up just throwing them away. But that's where our medical society is. It's just, you know, it's it's easier to give it away. Oh, they're in pain. This will make them feel better. But it, it causes such a the pills are such a gateway to heroin and all these bigger drugs and these people just get addicted and even someone you know in your situation who who doesn't really understand how that drug operates in their body they might think well you know i i feel better when i take it so i guess i'll just keep taking them and would get addicted totally kind of unaware and by accident so it's so important to be educating people just like you said like on the power the incredible power of these drugs yeah how many people get their wisdom teeth out right after college and this is the drug that they give them, you know, and, and it makes you feel great. I remember I was home with my wisdom teeth and they hurt so bad. I felt like I was the couch when I took it. But I, so I could see how people get addicted because, I mean, life is hard and, and this is it's easy and it's cheap and it's accessible. Many people might not know this, but substance abuse and mental health services has an opioid overdose prevention kit that can help you know the steps to help prevent an overdose or to reverse an overdose. So if if you or someone you know is at risk of an overdose, it's really a great resource that can can help to save a life in a crisis situation. Um, so we'll be sure to put that link in the show notes, but that's just a really practical tool to use, and uh, their site just has a lot of great resources to check out and, and to find help. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Virginia. So our next topic is a little lighter. Uh, We've all heard of the statistics that millennials are marrying later and having fewer children. But have you heard of self-partnering? The term, recently coined by actress Emma Watson, refers to seeing yourself as being fulfilled in your singleness. Here's Emma explaining it herself. I am dating, yeah. As in, as in, not one specific person, but I'm going on dates. Oh, you've got five or six on on the go at any time. (laughs) I never believed the whole "I'm happy single." Mm spiel mm. i was like this is spiel yeah this is totally Isn't spiel. It interesting the stuff that we take I in know. and have to unpack it took me a long time but i'm very happy i call it being self-partnered right right i like how the lady was like right <laughs> well the idea of self-partnering is also a prevailing theme in rap artist lizzo's song soulmate the song lyrics include Quote, because I'm my own soulmate, I know how to love me. And I'm going to marry me one day. She the one. A New York Times opinion piece analyzes phenomenon using Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a theory on what people need in order to become a healthy person. The hierarchy starts with physiological needs like water and food, then moves to safety needs like work and health, love and belonging, esteem, and then self-actualization, which is the desire to become the most one can be. The author argues that marriage was once needed to fulfill the lower levels of the hierarchy, food, shelter, etc. But as women become more able to provide those needs for themselves, that was no longer the case. Because of this, relationships moved into the highest level, self-actualization, which according to the author made people believe marriage was just one way to self-actualize. 
He closes the article saying, quote, it seems the search for the one is no longer about finding the only person who can make your life what it's supposed to be. It's more like a quest for someone who will join you on the lifelong journey of growth. Sometimes, though, the only suitable companion may be yourself. So, Virginia, let's just talk about this term self-partnered. Do you think that is a appropriate way to describe singleness? You know, I guess call it what you want to call it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's just being single. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I feel like we're we're so kind of keen and quick, especially in our generation, to kind of come up with, you know, these new terms and, you know, self-partnered sounds a little bit more uh, sophisticated than just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> single. But I, I also think that that term self-partnered is a little dangerous simply because it begins with self. And I, I certainly don't want kind of the focus of my life to be myself. Uh, I always, you know, want it to be on other people and focused on helping other people. And, and of course there's, you know, a role of growing in oneself and growing in your own identity and, um, you know, becoming more of, of who you were created to be, but our end all be all is not to serve ourselves. That's not the goal. So in that sense, I, I feel like that term, uh, could kind of be a slippery slope. I think there's a lot of false assumptions in this article, And one of the biggest things I think in our society that kind of plagues is, you know, there's all these bridal magazines and married people just seem happier. And there there is a big value on marriage and marriage is extremely important and people should get married and have lots of kids. But the best advice that I've always been told is if you're not happy single, you're not going to be happy married. There's no there's no secret sauce to getting married and having this big party with all your family and friends and now having a husband or a wife that's going to change your life to be happier on the inside if you're not happy. And so I think they're they're kind of looking for this happiness and just saying like, oh, if I'm self-partnered, I'd find this happiness. But no, what makes you happy inside of marriage is working with another person and building a relationship and really growing to to love one another. And and like you said, Virginia, like making each other better, that's what's going to make you happy. And so, yes, if you self-partner with yourself and you're making yourself better, you are going to find some of that fulfillment. But it seems like a kind of a cop-out. And this idea that now that women have jobs, they don't need men. That's insane. You know, that that's like saying that, OK, I can buy my own dinner. I, I, I don't need a husband. And that's not true. That's not what marriage is about. It's it's about having kids and, and growing a family and being part of something bigger. I am surprised that the article does gloss over complementarianism, which is a religious belief that men and women are different, but they come together to make something whole. And that's what I believe in, is that the goal of marriage is to bring two people together and make them into one. But you're not half of a person before you're coming into marriage. It's literally like an impossible math problem where one plus one equals one. And and you're not going into it as anything less. Yeah, no, it it is. It's this weird kind of dynamic or or situation. But I, I think a healthy marriage at the end of the day, it it's growing you, it's stretching you and it propels you to be a better version of yourself and to be um, more of of who God created you to be. And I'm I've been really interested in talking with some of my friends who are married. I had a memorable conversation over the summer with one of my friends who just got married. And, you know, she said that um, the biggest lesson for her so far in her like six months 
of marriage has been the realization of how selfish she is. Uh, And that's like, oh, wow. okay, I guess that's what you discover when you get married. But, you know, I think we have in our society just put a lot of focus on the wedding and how fun it is to be married, which is so true and so wonderful. Um, But there is this profound element of dying to self, of letting go of yourself and of thinking of the other person above yourself and and kind of out of that though you end up becoming a better person and it's it's that that shift away from just me 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 do you think this analysis on maslow's hierarchy of needs is accurate do we need a spouse to meet those basic needs or is our society at a place where now you can fulfill all of those needs yourself yeah, I, I mean, obviously, you know, now women are empowered to have jobs and, and careers and they might be able to feed themselves. But I, I think this, you know, this is not a, a man or woman situation that as human beings were created for intimate relationship. And so to say, well, you know, we've matured beyond the point of, you know, really needing another. Uh, that's just a lie. We need people in our lives. We need that accountability. We need the love of other people. We need that acceptance. It's just kind of how we're wired. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. It doesn't show weakness. It's actually just a really, really beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, while, while we can, you know, be strong, independent women, you know, go out, you know, make money, all those things, that's great, but that doesn't negate our need, uh, for relationship Um, And that beautiful desire for marriage and for the covenant of marriage. And while we're on it, I hate the term soulmate. I hate the idea of soulmates. (laughs) Uh, There's nothing biblical to it besides kind of this being this old wives tale. But I I think it just puts so much pressure on people to say, think that there's only one person out there that they can be happy with. And they have to spend all this time looking for this one person. And that's not true. I mean, in a religious sense, you can believe that God's his plans are perfect and he'll, he'll have you meet the right person. But it's not like there's only one human in the in the world that you'd be happy marrying with and you have to try in every pair of shoes to find the glass slipper. And, yeah, it, it's it's about understanding marriage and understanding relationships are hard work and being willing to find a person that you want to work with and work on having that relationship with and, and growing a life with. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I was interested that the article referenced that and referenced um, that Plato was the one that really uh, kind of began that that thought process and that idea that you only have one soulmate. And he had this uh, theory that uh, Zeus had cursed man and split him in two and you were kind of uh, destined for the rest of your days to walk the earth looking for that other half. Um, so, you know, interesting piece of of history. But um, certainly, like you said, Lauren, not accurate. I think there's many, many people on the planet who you could establish a a wonderful and healthy marriage with. Um, And it's it's not this, uh, you know, incredible thing that we're kind of doomed to spend so much time looking for this soulmate. But eventually we'll find someone they're really awesome and I love spending time with them and I want to do life with them. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, I want to tell you about one of the other great podcasts that we have here at The Daily Signal. You know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. And I know that you might be overwhelmed, too, just like sometimes I get very overwhelmed. So if you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. 
I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we always start your week off right with a good news story. So if you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. All right, welcome back. Buzz Lightyear has a bone to pick with the PC police. Tim Allen, the voice of Buzz Lightyear, popular comedian and star of Fox's Last Man Standing, talked on The View about how PC culture is overtaking comedy. You know, and then what I got to do sometimes is explain, which I hate in in big arenas, that this is a thought police thing and I do not like it. But when I use these words, this is my intent behind those words. So as long as you understand my intent, I still get people, well, just don't say it. And I said, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but they take it out of Allen went on to say that the situation has become, quote, alarming for comedians. The View's Joy Behar, who has also done stand-up comedy, agreed, saying, quote, PC culture makes it really hard. Tim Allen has been fighting against PC culture for a while now. In 2018, he said, quote, I like to mess around because I've been a stand-up fiery comic for 30 years. There's nothing that makes people angrier than a very funny conservative. And last man standing, his character Mike Baxter is a perfect example of this. Here's an example in one scene where his daughter walks him through what he can and can't say in a speech for her high school. Hey, everybody. <laughs> America's the land of opportunity. I stand before you. Stop. As- OK, by saying that America's the land of opportunity you are implying that everyone has the same opportunities. I'm not implying it. I'm saying it. <laughs> if you live here and you work hard, you can succeed. That's uh, how this works. Yeah, that was on here, too. It hurts the feelings of those who work hard and don't succeed. Where's the list of stuff that doesn't hurt people's feelings? That's got to be a short one. That's so funny. (laughs) So, Virginia, how do you think the silencing of comedians shows how far-reaching PC culture has become? Yeah, you know, it's it's really sad. I, I think comedy forever, it's been something that you know, we've we've sort of always understood that comedians have permission to say things that in our daily lives we would never say. And that's what makes it funny because uh, they're they're poking fun at, you know, the, the people that we interact with every day, at the situations that we experience every day. And they're reframing it in a way that oh my gosh, this is actually really humorous and, oh, wow, this is, you know, ridiculous that we operate this way. So in order to kind of take that away from comedians and say, oh, you have to be, you know, so careful and so sensitive to everyone in every situation, it puts them in this little box. And, you know, of course, there are things that, you know, are simply not appropriate and, you know, there's the rules of knowing your audience and all of that. But it really does, I think, limit a comedian's creative freedom to put these kind of politically correct restrictions on them and on their comedic routines. And he talks a lot about the context and the intention behind the words, that he comes at it with good intentions and he wants to do exactly that. He wants to make people laugh and and have a discussion and think about this stuff. So, Virginia, what do you think about how Tim Allen has chosen to combat PC culture? I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's he's sort of a little bit of one of those good old boys that has you know decided, all right, no matter what, I'm I'm going to speak my mind. I'm going to be really honest, and you sort of get what you get with me. And I really appreciate that about Tim Allen. That you know, he's he's not really trying to impress anyone. You know. He's he's just very honest. He's going to continue, you know, doing his comedy the way he's done it. And I think you have to understand about that. That's that's not from a place 
of of malice or malintent. It's from a place of I'm I'm sharing, you know, my own experiences and I'm doing it in such a way that for years and years and years people have thought is hilarious. So I'm going to keep doing that. And I think the show Last Man Standing is such a great example of this. People talk about how it's so conservative. It's not really that conservative of a show. I mean, the lead character likes Trump and is kind of like a a guy's guy. But besides that, it's not like it's like this weird brainwashing show where all they talk about is how great Trump is. Like, no, it shows he's a conservative guy with a really liberal grandson. And it's kind of back and forth, you know, a la All in the Family. And I just think it's such a great way to kind of counter the left and this anti-PC culture of, no, we're going to make a show and people are going to watch it and it's going to be hilarious. And I think that picture of the last man standing household is much more accurate to most of our family households that, you know, I have people in my family that are, you know, very, very conservative and very liberal. And it is funny sometimes the things that, you know, either the conversations that we have or the ones that we can't have and we, you know, both know that we can't have, that it's it's that tension within family of, oh gosh, you know, if I say this, are you offended and rolling your eyes because they were offended? And <laughs> it, it's just, it's real life. Yeah. And at the end of the day, they figure out their differences and they still love one another. And it's it's such a great message. I would really recommend uh, anyone who hasn't seen the show to go ahead and watch it because, A, we should be supporting comedians like Tim Allen and B, it's hilarious. It really is a great show. Definitely check it out. All right. We are going to switch gears uh, and talk for a second about football, one football! of Lauren's favorite subjects. <laughs> During the Ohio State versus Michigan game this past Saturday, Football announcers praised the playing of Ohio State running back J.K. Dobbins. During the game, Dobbins had 31 carries for 211 yards, four touchdowns, and two catches for 49 yards. As the announcers commented on footage of Dobbins' final touchdown, announcer Gus Johnson shocked fans as he slipped into this powerful story. Take a listen. J.K. Dobbins' mom, Maya became pregnant when she was 18 years old. She went to the doctor because she was thinking about aborting the baby, but changed her mind. That baby turned out to be that young man, J.K. Dobbins, who she calls her miracle baby. Several pro-lifers tweeted about the story, thanking Gus Johnson for sharing the message that all life matters. One fan said, God bless Dobbins' mom for that decision, not just because he's a running back, but because every human life deserves to live. And Justin tweeted, J.K. Dobbins brings joy to many people and will go down as one of the best running backs for Ohio State and possibly college football history, all because he was given the chance to live in all caps. However, some were not so happy about it, calling Gus Johnson a complete idiot. Gus Johnson should owe big apologies after that comment he made about Dobbins' mother almost aborting him, one tweet read. And another said, why is Gus Johnson talking about Dobbins' mother thinking about having an abortion? Hashtag awkward and inappropriate. All right, so Lauren, you watched the game. What was your first thought or reaction when you heard the announcer sharing this story? So I was on a plane when I was watching this game. I didn't hear this exact line said live. I didn't see it until I landed 
But this is a huge game. This is the Ohio State University versus the University of Michigan. They're two of the biggest rivals. The Ohio State University crosses out all the M's on campus the week before the game. That's <laughs> that, hilarious. That. So it, it's a, just this really huge rivalry. Um, it was a noon game on Rivalry Saturday. Lots of eyeballs on this. And I was just really happy to see this positive example and see this really great young man, great football player, have a spotlight on him and talk about, you know, the mom was in this really hard situation and she chose life and she calls him her miracle baby. And and he is a miracle. And yeah, it's just great to hear. Great to see. And I love to talk about football on the podcast. So that was my (laughs) second thought of, yes, now we can talk about football and problematic women. (laughs) Now we can talk about it. Yeah. No, I, I was interested as I listened to the clip, just at how, how natural it kind of felt like it fit in with the whole story that, you know, I think we kind of often, um, you know, hear announcers say these things about players, about, you know, maybe where they've come from or, or their past. And it just, it felt very natural that, you know, this is Dobbin's story. This is the story that he's telling, that his mom is telling. Uh, and it, it's, it's not like some sort of pu- publicity stunt like this. This is just who he is. It's his background. It's where he came from. It's what his mom walked through. Uh, and it's fact. Uh, so I I thought it fit in really well. Um, and, you know, we all we all love those stories of obviously, you know, if his mom was in a position of considering having an abortion, um, you know, there was probably reasons why she was struggling with that choice. She was 18. She, yeah, she was young. Um, and, you know, obviously a, a difficult choice to make, but she chose life. And now the joy of of watching her son be this star, that's so encouraging. And it's uh, it's such a story of hope. Well, I think it's proponents of abortion don't want to hear about this. They don't want to know that it's a baby. And, and they kind of have convinced themselves that there's nothing bad about abortion. And this story shows like, no, the, the clump of cells in this woman's stomach turned out to be a fully formed human being. And it. It is a hard mindset if you do kind of brush off abortion as being, you know, this kind of medical procedure that you have. But it's 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 affecting life and it's affecting uh, another human. And I think it's hard reality. And that's why I think some of these reactions say this is awkward. This is inappropriate because it makes them feel awkward. But to us, we hear it. We're like, wow, this is great. This is so uplifting. So I think it really just depends on your viewpoint. And I hope this kind of does help some people kind of turn the gears in their head and realize that, you know, abortion is is terrible and abortion affects a a human being that could grow up to be a star football player at the Ohio State University. Yeah, it's like we we never know uh, when we never will know, you know, from all of the millions of babies that have been aborted, you know, how many of those kids would have grown up to uh, you know, to make a huge impact on this world, to to be leaders in their communities, to be football players, to be actors and actresses, to, um, you know, be pastors. We'll, we'll never know that. Teachers, doctors, you know, yeah. there's just so much. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, Virginia interviews pro-life author, speaker, and activist Bethany Bomberger about her new book, Pro-Life Kids, and her own pro-life journey. Stay tuned. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. 
through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. I am joined by Bethany Bomberger, author of the children's book, Pro-Life Kids, and the executive director of the Radiance Foundation, a life-affirming organization that is rooted in the belief that we are all created in God's image and have undeniable purpose. Bethany, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's, it's an honor. I'm so glad to be with you guys today. So you wrote the book, Pro-Life Kids, to explain the value of each life to children in a way that they could understand. So how did the idea for the book come to you? Well, I am so passionate about this new initiative. And for years, I have been, I was teacher by profession. That's my undergrad, my grad work. And of course, now I'm a homeschooling mom of four amazing kiddos, adoptive and biological. And between uh, all those jobs, if you will, and uh, being the executive director of the Radiance Foundation, where we are passionate about illuminating the truth that every life has intrinsic value, and our heart is to educate folks about a myriad of social issues in the context of God-given purpose. So because of those roles in my life, my heart was to really put together a book and an initiative that would also have supporting aspects to it for those that find it really difficult to talk about the human rights and justice of our day with our children. I have had many, many conversations with parents, teachers, adults across the nation, really across the globe. And although they might have a pro-life worldview, they're not sure how to articulate to their children what it means to be pro-life. So what the choice ends up being is they don't talk about it. Children are naturally pro-life. And so I believe that it's an, as adults who are pro-life, it should be our intention to help foster that natural inclination. So my my motivation was to take the fear out of discussing something very difficult by enabling adults to have tools in their hand that are already created that will be a jump off to talk about a very difficult social issue that is really rooted in creating a culture of life for children. So what has been the response both from children and adults to the book? You know, have have you had parents saying, wow, sure. this, this is such a practical tool that I can now use to talk to my children about this issue? I'm actually overwhelmed by the response. We were going to do a soft launch during Adoption Awareness Month in November, and we sold out in just the first few days of our first printing. We always put a little thank you in with the book, and so we've said if anybody wants to share their thoughts or comments, and we've just had the most amazing pictures that have been sent in of moms reading to their kiddos. On paper, the book is like for K to five, but moms and dads that are reading to their preschoolers, older elementary school children. We got this one video. It was so precious that as the child was just reading it out loud, it was prompting questions and it was doing exactly what I was praying that it would do, opening up children's eyes to understand the value of life and to be able to ask the hard questions. But it's neat, too, because we sold out in just a few days of our first run, but we're seeing orders come in from everywhere across the states, but Australia, New Zealand, 
Italy, Dubai, and we're saying, okay, this is something that pro-lifers are hungry for. We no longer want to stay silent when it comes to empowering our children. I think we're seeing across the nation, across the board, the influence of a broken worldview coming into our kids' hearts and lives, especially in the public schools, in media, in television. And I know that if we don't teach our children foundational truths from a very young age, a broken worldview will will reach them. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that broken worldview, because you have, as as you mentioned, you've been a teacher for so many years, both in public and private schools. So you've had the opportunity to kind of firsthand, uh, you know, watch young children grow up and, and watch their perspectives mm. form. So have you seen a shift over, let's say, the past decade in the way that children talk about the issue of life? Absolutely. And there is a very pointed agenda that is looking to speak into our children's hearts and minds from kindergarten and before. There is really a fight for their soul and a desire to influence at younger and younger ages. And over the years, I mean, I'm talking the last 20 years, to see the influence and how things have changed at these younger levels. It's amazing what we're hearing kids say in high school and college, which is a result of the influence of what's being taught at younger ages. And it's interesting, too, because there is such an onslaught of literature being placed in our schools, in our libraries, in kids' hands. I mean, of course, we can turn on the television and see the same um, broken worldview coming out in the programming, but very specifically getting books into hands and being having having teachers who are misguided in that they think they're teaching freedom, but they're really presenting a worldview that's broken. And as we've looked into some of the books that are currently being shelved in school libraries, in public libraries, we're seeing things like Feminist Baby, which is like a board book about a really warped perspective on what it means to be a feminist. And we're seeing Amelia Banau, I believe that's how we say her last name. She created the Shout Your Abortion campaign, and she has these videos that are going viral where kids are meeting people who have had abortions in order to normalize them. But she's now talking about releasing a kid's book in 2020. Glad that we be there to the punch, and I'm praying that those don't go very far. But there are, there are books on the shelf. For instance, it's, one, it's called Sister Apple, Sister Pig, and it is a children's book that explains to young children why parents chose to abort the, child, the child's sister. And they talk about how great it was that she had been aborted, and she's now a ghost, you know? So I know that when I was a child, we weren't seeing this in a classroom. We weren't, when I first began my teaching career, this was not the norm. And now we are seeing that this is the norm. My children are growing up in a world that is, it's just an onslaught of a really humanist agenda that allows for sexual identity to be presented in the form of things that will cause confusion, abortion is now being touted younger and younger as as the savior 
of their communities. And so my heart is that these children who are so precious and so innocent and so like sponges, just ready to drink up what we give to them, we can't overlook the opportunity that we have to speak into their hearts and lives and not just change the trajectory of their life, but of those that are in their sphere of influence. What would you say to the mom or to the dad who wants to raise their children you know, with this value of, of being pro-life and valuing every life. I mean, of course, they should buy your book and, and start reading it to their children. But how do you how do you in a daily setting continue that conversation with your child? Well, my first thing is that let's dispel this fear that comes along with the thought of talking about the human rights issue of our day, which is abortion. And let's understand that foundationally, as parents, we need to be intentional about creating a culture of life, which is what so many moms do, right? We have toddlers, we teach them to share from the ages of like two, you know, when they're starting to realize that um, they want everything for themselves. We teach them share and be kind. And that's really part of this foundation of understanding that why are we teaching them to be kind to others? Because we want them to see other people as valuable. We want them to grow up and understand that treating other people with respect will not only help them be better people, but help them to be better citizens and help us to have a a better society. So my heart would be that let's not overcomplicate it. We don't have to go into all of the deep graphic or philosophical reasons why abortion is wrong, but if we just are intentional about highlighting why everybody's important, why older people are important and younger, and that truth that says it doesn't matter your size or your age or your level of development. And I think there's a lot of ways that we can create a culture that lays the groundwork for when they begin to understand at a different level the gravity of abortion, that there's already a standard by which they're going to weigh that information. And so instead of fearing it as this big mountain that we can't climb, understand that so many pro-life, you know, moms, dads, parents, grandparents are have the mindset, but we have to be intentional, like you said, to do this on a daily basis and address how we deal with with people and look at humanity in general. So good. Can you share a little bit about your own pro-life journey? Have have you always been passionate about the pro-life movement? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up and we were, um, I remember as a teen being with my mom outside of abortion clinics holding some signs while they were praying. And so it was ingrained into us from a a young age that abortion was wrong. Uh, We didn't talk about it a lot in the house. You know, it wasn't like something we, we talked about a lot. And it, you know, it's funny, I think back and we also, we were very, you know, pro-adoption, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that we talked about often either. And I think part of, um, as I grew and went into college and began to 
understand how some of my friends were finding themselves in positions where they were thinking about abortion. And I was presented with things that had been an idea in my mind then became a reality. Now, what are you going to do? How are you going to speak into this situation? I know that from my earlier teenage years, really wanting to walk alongside the side of friends that were wanting to take what was given to them, uh, what was touted as the easy way out, and really spent time and energy investing in in their lives. Over the years, I have grown to advocate for strong families and for the courageous decision of birth moms who have chosen to place. And as a teacher and seeing just the absolute beautiful impact that adoption can have, all of those things, you know, really helped form my my pro-life view. Then when I was in my 20s, before Ryan and I were married, I conceived out of wedlock my oldest daughter. And after really coming to grips with my personal choice and the way I had really turned my back on the Lord for a season in life, when I found that I was pregnant, went for an ultrasound at six weeks, I saw this little cute little rice, little piece of rice that looked like beating. It was my daughter's beating heart. And I did have a defining moment in that ultrasound room. And I just felt God's heart just come around my heart and this baby's heart. And I decided that everything I had already said I believed and was challenged when other people were walking through it now became so personal to me. And it's really special because that night I said, Lord, I'm just going to give my heart back to you. And I opened an old journal and on the side of the journal, on the side of the page was written um, Proverbs 34, 5, which says, I sought the Lord. He delivered me from all my fears. Those that look to him will be radiant and their faces will never be covered with shame. So my oldest daughter's name is Haley Radiance because I decided that night that any selfish decisions that I had made, that would not be the testimony she knew. And I knew that from a pro-life perspective, that it solidified, it cemented everything I'd ever thought, everything I'd ever shared with anybody else, because the rubber hits the road when you're in that predicament and you have to make the decision and you're faced with the fear. And here we are all these years later, you know, married to my husband, who's one of um, 10 that were adopted in his family. We're adoptive parents and we run the Radiance Foundation, which is predicated upon the exchanging of shame when you talk about some of these unplanned pregnancies and you exchange that for glory and for the radiance of Christ. And so it's very much been a journey for me, but it went from abstract to personal. And so I feel like I just want to live from an authentic place. And so I think that's partly why I'm so passionate about ProLifeKids.com and this initiative, because I know that what was spoken to me as a child has really influenced who I am today. Yeah. 
No, and that is so evident by the way that you speak. That is just incredible to hear. Thank you, Bethany, for sharing that, just your personal story. And wow, what what an amazing way that, that the Radiance Foundation came about and that the Lord brought you on this journey. So you've mm. you've mentioned a little bit about what you all do at, at the Radiance Foundation, but I want to give you an opportunity just to expand a little bit more and share just kind of on, on a day to day, how, how are you all journeying with women and, and walking with them through maybe through, through their pregnancy process or, or just spreading that pro-life message? Awesome. Yes. Well, it's been about, it's been 10 years since my husband and I co-founded uh, the Radiance Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization. And our motto is illuminate, educate, motivate, because our heart is to illuminate that every life has purpose and intrinsic value. So we educate about a myriad of social issues, abortion, adoption, parenting, fatherlessness, poverty, all in the context of God-given purpose. It has taken us to keynoting 50 to 60 events a year, um, conferences, summits, college um, debates on college campuses, lectures. My husband is Ryan Bomberger. He's spoken at Harvard and Columbia Law School and all across the nation and even um, spoken across the globe and in different countries, sharing and educating through multimedia presentations. We also do this through uh, fearless journalism. That's what I like to say about my husband's journalism. We write about these very difficult social issues, and our heart is that we can help people understand a biblical which is also a scientific uh, perspective on these issues, which will empower people to not fear speaking about them from a, a biblical and a healthy perspective. And ultimately, what good is all the education without putting it into action? What good is our faith unless it's put into action? So really our heart at the Radiance Foundation is to motivate people to put their knowledge into action. And so, like I mentioned, this comes out in the multimedia presentations and, and the journalism. We've done media campaigns across the nation, hundreds of billboards that um, have gone up with messaging and will allow people to go to sites that will uh, give them uh, information and help them to be educated. And we also have done over the years um, community outreach. One of my favorites is Sally's Lambs Outreach, which is an outreach to courageous birth moms. We partner with those who have boots on the ground, with um, adoption caseworkers, with maternity homes. We gift them maternity clothes and gifts for the mamas that way because um, we are each a different piece of the puzzle, and so our heart is to help those that are doing things locally do them well. And, of course, ProLifeKids.com is, is our newest initiative, which will prayerfully empower generations of children to be part of this movement. We we are so excited for pro life kids and just to watch the the success of that book. It's, it's just so incredibly powerful. Where can where can our listeners find that book? Awesome, yeah. ProLifeKids.com is is fantastic. It is uh, the best place to pick them up. And our second our second print should be here in the next week and a half. So our prayers we can get them out to people um, in a timely fashion because they're great Christmas presents and. On the site, there's also other things. There'll be there's uh, downloadables. 
that make it easy to print off, uh, for mamas to print off and let their kiddos color. There's there's other bits and pieces of information that will help parents feel empowered. We have T-shirts and posters that are also available to help reinforce ProLifeKids.com. And in the next in the next few months, we have uh, plans to put out some curriculum and some other things. Our heart is long term to just help. We see this as a long-term way to really elevate a really a part of the movement, the pro-life movement, that not that they've been overlooked, but we just haven't seen them empowered. And so prolifekids.com is the place to go. Great. Thank you so much, Bethany. All right. We are going to take a quick break, but Bethany is going to stay with us for the next segment. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Welcome back. It is now time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And this week, it is none other than our wonderful guest, Bethany Bomberger. Congratulations, Bethany. What an honor. It's so exciting. So, Bethany, I would love to ask you what advice you would give to other women who have maybe an idea for a book or an organization or a way that they want to help people, but they feel like they just don't have the time or the resources. What would you say to them? Wow, what a great question. Because as women, and I I know that I'm a mama, I'm a homeschooling mama of four kids and the executive director of the Radiance Foundation, I know that sometimes it feels like climbing the mountains of our dreams is an insurmountable task. But I do know that when we take one step at a time, that we find that we, before we know it, we're conquering mountains. And so my my advice would be don't give up on those God dreams. I, I believe as a Christian that as my heart, as I connects with God, as I understand who I am in Him, that His dreams, His desires become my desires. And the desires of our heart are to see a broken world be introduced to the Savior. And I know that one of the easiest ways for us as women to feel squelched is to be feel defeated before we even start the process of living out our dreams. And so my advice would be take it one day at a time, one breath at a time, spend time praying about and laying out on paper what is in your heart to do. And instead of looking at all the insurmountable tasks that it will take to accomplish the goal, just begin walking it out. And before you know it, you'll realize that You've come farther than you ever dreamt you could have come. And a lot of that is because when we're weak, he's strong. And as we continue to turn our God dreams over to him, he finds a way to take our natural and mix it with his super. And so it becomes something supernatural. A lot of times I'm asked, how do you do this? How did you walk through an adoption and run a nationwide organization and homeschool your kids? And I smile because I think, I, in the flesh and on paper, I'm not even sure because it does seem like it's just an insurmountable task. But I do know that over the years, I have determined in my heart to really um, make decisions about what I think is most important.
important in life, what my passions are, and what my talents are. I've put that down on paper. I've prayed about it. And I have been very intentional about having a smaller group of people and friends that I trust. I don't, I trust them because they don't yes me to death. They tell me no when I maybe am thinking something that would be out of alignment, but they are really um, the most valuable people. And my circle over the years got very small. And for a moment, I started thinking, I'm losing friends. But then I just remember that, you know, when I go outside and I prune my rose bushes, sometimes I got to cut back things that might be dead in order for those blooms to come back better than before. So my, my advice, hands down, would be don't give up on your dreams, but take them one day at a time, soak them in prayer, and be surrounded by awesome people that love you and want to see your dreams come to fruition. So much great advice in there, Bethany. So last question, and one of our favorite questions here at Problematic Women is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Why or why not? I love that. That's such like that's that's such a big topic in our society today. And it's funny because I definitely would consider myself a true feminist. And that is um opposed to a fake feminist. A true feminist is a is a feminist. It is a woman that understands the beauty of the design of womanhood, of what it means to be a female that is truly empowered in her role and in her identity. And the beauty of true feminism says, I don't have to be a man to achieve amazing things. I can look at myself and my body and understand the beauty of what I've been designed to be, the beauty of the ability to carry a child, to protect a child, to feed a child. And so I would say that 100% I'm a true feminist. I'm a Christian woman who says, I believe in a pro-life God who looked down and saw women and empowered them to take a role, to have a voice, and, and to not have to step on others in order to see their purposes come to fruition, but to understand my identity and who I was created to be. And so that's my my long answer, but yes, I believe that I am a true feminist because that is what I want for all women. And at the same time, as a true feminist, I believe that men should step into their roles as men and they should do what they are empowered to do. And there is enough space on this planet for us to walk in our roles and to affect change and to be positive beacons of light in our sphere of influence. So good. Thank you so much, Bethany. We just so appreciate your time today and you coming on to share about the work that you're doing and the impact that you're having. Thank you. Awesome. Honored to be with you guys. Thank you so much. That's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning where we get co-host Kelsey Bowler back for a week. She's going to talk about her new baby, Scarlett, and what it was like being a NICU mom and just all the new lessons that she's learned becoming a mother. But in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make such a huge difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.
It is a product of the Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce problematic women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.